Something struck me there as we were singing, and I want to take a moment to have a, a prayer as we before we begin our our time in the Word. There's a lot of tomorrows coming up that are scary. Wednesday of this week is a, a scary day. There's been a lot of yesterdays that make me afraid for tomorrow. But because Jesus lives, we can face it. We have a greater hope beyond anything that's happening in Washington or Denver or wherever. And we need to remember that in these times. And we need to be praying for our leaders, whether we approve of them or not, whether we think anything that's going on is right, despite any of that. God puts people in places for a reason. And we need to be praying for whatever is going on in our country, that, that God is going to work through it, his plan. And we know that. Even though his plans might not be easy to see or understand, he knows what's going to happen. So would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much that that you raised Jesus from the dead, that beyond your love for us that caused you to send your Son, Lord, you made a promise through him that if we believe in him, you would give us eternal life. But when you raised him from the dead, you showed us that promise is true. And we know that because Jesus lives, we someday will live forever with you because we have believed that. We know that our time on this earth is so short in comparison with eternity, and yet it's so consuming in the moment. And we, we face things that may seem to be overwhelming, Lord, that our country, that not more than a generation or two ago seemed to love you so much, and it now seems to despise you. We pray for the sake of those here and for the believers around this country that you continue to keep your hand of mercy upon us, that you guide us through whatever perilous times are ahead, Lord, that you protect those who love you, and that you glorify yourself through our nation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stuff gets on my mind, and sometimes it just has to come out. I think I've told you before, when I was young, it's something I've worked to overcome through the years, but I had a problem that I always had to be right. I did not like to be wrong, and it still happens. It's something I think I've gotten better at, but I remember as a youth, it, it's funny the way my brain works because I can go to the grocery store with a list of four things and walk in and forget three of them. But yet I can retain all these weird facts in my head. And so when someone says something, and I know for a fact that I'm right, I have this, something inside of me just needs to feel like they know that I'm right too. Some time ago, something came up in our home, and, and I was sure that I was right. And I, I kept saying, well, know this. And, and finally, it was like, are we... What are we arguing over? And that's something, again, I've tried to, to get better at. But that moment of vindication, when the other person sees that you're right, 
That's something that I, when I was young, I would fight for that because it feels good to be right. It feels good to see the other person go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, now I see. That's something for me that would drive me. I pray now that God has shown me enough times how I've been wrong that I can understand that I'm not always right. But that vindication, having proof. We're continuing today in Paul's history lesson for the churches in Galatia. Last week in the second half of chapter 1 in Galatians, Paul used his own testimony and ministry, which I called sort of his resume, to prove to the Galatians that his gospel came from God alone. That he wasn't dependent on anyone else for what he was preaching to them. That was his major theme, was that he had remained independent of the other apostles. Which leads us to believe that these Judaizers who had infiltrated the church were accusing Paul of that. They were accusing him of preaching a man-made gospel that wasn't the real way to get to God. So Paul is coming in here and saying, no, 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 no. I had no relationship with them. I had no dependence upon them. So our big idea last week was that the gospel of grace comes from God alone. And Paul showed that by stressing his independence. He had received the gospel that he had preached to them by special revelation directly from God. And now today, as Paul continues in this history lesson, he's going to tell these churches about a second visit to Jerusalem. If you remember last week we looked at, he said that three years after he was saved, he made a trip to Jerusalem. He only stayed a short time, 15 days. He only met with Cephas, who is Peter, and James. It was a get-to-know-you trip. He said specifically it was to get acquainted with Cephas. This next trip he's going to tell us about is different. And while it is different, and we'll see how, it does not change the big idea. It only adds more depth to it. The gospel of grace comes from God alone, and it was preached by the other apostles as well. The gospel of grace comes from God alone, and it was preached by the other apostles as well. Paul is going to relate other events from his previous ministry, specifically his meeting with these, the other apostles in Jerusalem. And he is doing so to establish for his readers that although he was not dependent upon them for his message or his ministry, that he was preaching the same gospel that they did. The gospel of grace comes from God alone, and it was preached by the other apostles as well. Let's read the passage. Today we'll be in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul begins here, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. 
But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word, Lord. I pray that you be with us today as we study it. Be with me as I relate what I have learned in my studies this week, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul is telling us about his second trip to Jerusalem. Again, verses 1 and 2. He said, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. When he says 14 years here, he's He's counting from when he was saved, not from his last trip to Jerusalem. So this is placing this around AD 47, a year or so before his first missionary journey. In Acts 11, we saw that Barnabas brought Paul back from Cilicia to assist with the ministry in Antioch. So Paul was living there at the time this happened. In Paul's ministry, reading through the book of Acts, you can see that Paul visited Jerusalem five times, at least five times, five times that were recorded. And this would be the second of those visits. He described the first one last week, the short trip he took. This would be his second visit to Jerusalem. And in that beginning, he says he took Barnabas with him. Barnabas would have been well known to the church in Galatia because... Barnabas had been with Paul when he was preaching to the Galatians. And he also took Titus with him, who we saw that later on Paul has to describe who he was to them. He was a Greek. And he was a close companion of Paul's throughout Paul's writings. Uh, he mentions him often and, and wrote to him. And so we see here that the first reason that Paul went to Jerusalem stemmed from a vision. There are some who think that we read today in Acts about Abacus's vision of an impending famine and that the Antioch church raised funds to send to Jerusalem. And so there are those that think that it was that vision that caused Paul to go to Jerusalem. That may be the case, Paul isn't clear here, but given the, the rest of the context, I believe that in concordance with Abacus's vision that Paul received his own vision from the Lord saying, you need to go and you need to talk with the leaders in Jerusalem. 
I think Paul received his own vision. The second half of verse 2 says that he submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. What was this fear that Paul had? Why did he present his gospel to these men in response to what the Lord had revealed to him? Paul's fear that he should run in vain it may seem to refer to the fact that the Jerusalem apostles, upon hearing Paul's gospel, they would reject it. And that would somehow be, he would feel like he had gotten it wrong. But I don't think that can be the case, given what he's already written to us in the book of Galatians. I don't think that could be his fear. In chapter 1, he has told us that he is absolutely certain of his gospel because it came directly from God. He also told us in chapter 1 that he didn't need to get his gospel approved by the other apostles. He wasn't going there seeking approval. It seems rather that Paul feared that if he didn't contact the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and John, that his critics, those who were criticizing his gospel, they would have a foothold. They would have a way to say, well, look, He's preaching this, but that's not approved by them. They might point to the fact that Paul had no fellowship with the Jerusalem apostles. They might go on to suggest the fact that there's no fellowship because there was a difference in the gospel that they were preaching. So in essence, Paul went and presented his gospel to the apostles because he was afraid of exactly what was happening in Galatia right then. These Judaizers were accusing him of giving a different gospel. That he didn't have the right authority. And so Paul says, for that reason, a couple years ago, again, we stated when we started looking at the book, this probably was written in AD 49, so a couple years after this visit. A couple years ago, Paul says, I went and met with them to deal with this very situation. I met with these men of high reputation. Peter, James, and John, the men that walked with Jesus. And I find it, it interesting that Paul says that he was afraid of running in vain. What does he mean by that? It's actually a very common expression in Paul's writing. And I think it points to something that is central to his theology. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I 
Next, turn over to 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Paul says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. We'll jump back to Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. The word vain that's used here means empty, devoid of spiritual value, without purpose or result. So what's he getting at? To run or to labor in vain would be to have nothing of spiritual or eternal value to show for your work or for your running. It would mean that there will be no eternal reward at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for a given labor. Which Paul here, in those three verses we looked at would be to the Galatian churches, the Philippian church, church in Thessalonica. Paul is saying that if someone that he as disciple would fall away from the faith, then his expected reward for the ministry would be greatly lessened. There's a truth in knowing that we will be rewarded for everything we do for the Lord, but that we were called to, as we looked at just a few weeks ago in Matthew, we were called to make disciples. And part of that is encouraging and following up with them and continuing to build them in the faith. And so Paul is concerned that, you know, he was, he couldn't be everywhere at once. It's not today's world where it's easy to pop over somewhere. And so he's, he's writing these letters to these churches to encourage them, to encourage them in their faith to stay strong, that the work he did there wouldn't have a diminished result for eternity. One last passage in looking at this, turn with me to 2 John 8. Second John 8, John writes, Therefore we ought to support such men. Oh, I was in third John 8. Second John 8, sorry. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Actually, the New King James and several other translations use that we may receive a full reward, which I think is a better rendering of the Greek there. John is saying the same thing that, that Paul is saying. John is encouraging his readers to continue in their faith and so that the work that he has done will receive its just reward. And I think this is, this is crucial to Paul's theology. That the gospel, and the gospel was central to this. His gospel of faith alone in Christ alone Everything else built on that. That if you ever turned like the churches in Galatia were, and you were saying, well, it's faith plus circumcision, faith plus the dietary regulations, faith plus following the Sabbath, faith plus whatever, 
that you were putting the emphasis on you and taking it away from God. And therefore, you were falling away from the gospel. And whenever they were never going to grow in their faith, they were never going to grow as disciples, and therefore, he would have labored in vain. There are many other passages where Paul uses it not for his personal, but he doesn't want those he's writing to to be laboring in vain. He wants them to receive the rewards that are due to them. He does not want them to fall away. I brought those passages out specifically because they point to what he's talking to here is that he is worried that if this these leaders in Jerusalem say that, no, your gospel isn't right, it will have no effect on his own belief. He knows exactly what God told him. He's seen it work out in his own life, and he's seen it work out in the lives of those he shared it with already. But he's worried that it will hinder those who have already believed, those in Antioch he's been ministering to, those in the other areas he's been already prior to his first missionary journey. And he's worried that as he knows God has set him aside to preach to the Gentiles, he's worried that his future ministry will be hindered, that everywhere he would go, the gospel wouldn't be received because they would say, oh, you're not preaching what the leaders in Jerusalem preach. So to avoid this possibility, Paul is meeting with Peter, James, and John privately. Uh, some scholars think that they may have met in private because Paul was a wanted man and that any public meeting could have done more harm than good. In verses three to five, we see Paul's rejection of the false teachers and their enslaving doctrine. It begins in verse three, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So again, Paul's fear was not that he had been preaching an erroneous gospel. It was that these false teachers who were saying that Gentile converts had to become Jews before they could experience justification would somehow undercut his work, what he was doing. And so he begins here by highlighting this issue of circumcision. Throughout Judaism, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, if he was going to become proselytized, the very first step would have been circumcision. That was first thing. So these Judaizers were telling these believers that their faith was great, but you also have to become a Jew. And so step one is you need to be circumcised. And so Paul is pointing out here that in Jerusalem, in the presence of the mother church, in the presence of these men of reputation, Peter, James, and John, that even Titus, that Titus didn't even feel the need in front of all of these Jews to be circumcised. The Greek there for compelled, really, it, it means forced. He was not forced by them to be circumcised. They didn't push that on him. Verse 4 introduces this other reason that Paul went up to Jerusalem. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. 
So evidently these Judaizers, these representatives and false teachers, they entered into Paul's area of ministry in Antioch. Several years before they tried to turn the churches in Galatia. He calls them false brethren. They were not believers. They were opposing what Paul taught, and their intent was to bring Paul and the other preachers and hearers of the gospel into bondage. This is the first time in the book of Galatians that Paul brings up this contrast of bondage and liberty. And they were doing it by imposing circumcision in the Jewish law as necessary for justification. But they were not successful. Paul says there that the truth of the gospel, verse 5, but when but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The truth of the gospel there means the gospel in its integrity. The liberty to which Paul referred to here is not some sort of abstract freedom, but this liberty that the believers have in Jesus Christ from the law. Later on in Galatians, Paul will go into much more detail about that. But again, they did not yield in subjection to them even for an hour, not for a moment did they submit to this false gospel. It was too important. I saw a video this week of a, a sermon the, the, the pastor's overall point was not wrong. I just thought it was funny in comparison to what I was studying. But he just kept repeating this phrase over and over and over that Jesus didn't call us to be right. He called us to love. Jesus didn't call us to be right. He called us to love. And in an overall sense, I think he's right. That Jesus said that the world would know us by our love, but Make no mistake, there are certain things that we have to be right about. The truth of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel, faith alone in Christ alone is worth fighting for. And Paul did. If you're going to pick a hill to die on, that is a hill to die on. I like that saying. I think I use it a lot because my dad uses it a lot. He told me once that when he was in Myanmar teaching pastors that he used that saying and they all had this confused look on their face. And they said, well, what does that mean? And so he went on to tell them the story of Custer and Little Bighorn and how if you're defending, you want the high ground. And if the high ground is, is worth the fight, that you will die on that hill defending the high ground. Now, I have been to Little Bighorn. I would not have died on that hill. <laughs> There's nothing there. But this, the gospel of grace, this is worth fighting for. Paul refused to submit to a false gospel, even for a moment, so that the truth would continue among the Gentiles 
Remember, this is a couple years before he even went to Galatia, and he says, among you. He fought for it so that he could continue to preach it. And he did. And they received it with joy. And it was because he fought for it. The very truth that they had received was because he had fought for it, and it remained in them, it continued in them. Our last section here will be the remaining four verses, six through ten, or five verses. And we see the favorable reception by the apostles. In verse six it says, But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me kind of seems a little snarky. Paul's reference to James, Peter, and John may sound almost insolent, but his point was that they were, they were not superior apostles to him. He knew his mission. Again, we looked at what an apostle was. In its general sense, it's anyone who's sent but there were certain men who had a special commission from Jesus Christ, and Paul was one of those, and he knew it. We read God's words to Ananias in Acts 9 a couple weeks ago when Ananias said, well, God, I can't go to that guy. He's persecuting the church. And God said, no, I have set him aside to be a vessel for me to the Gentiles and to kings and to the Jews. He had a mission, and he knew it, and he was carrying it out, and he didn't have to feel inferior to these men in Jerusalem just because other men held them of high reputation. I found this quote interesting. It says, the repetition of the expression, men of high reputation, he used it in verse 2, seems to indicate that it is a title given by the Jerusalem church to its leaders. So, interrupting here, but when he's using this term twice, it makes it seem like this is, he's not making it up, that the church in Jerusalem, that's what they called these men, that they were, oh, the, the men of high reputation. And you would have known I was speaking of the apostles. So it seems to indicate that it was a title given by the Jerusalem church to its leaders, which Paul uses, possibly with a tinge of irony, in deprecation of the arrogant and extravagant claims which the Judaizers were making for the Jerusalem leaders. So men esteem other men, and Paul doesn't care about any of that. You hold these men up, that doesn't matter. God doesn't view them with partiality. He's given everyone a different mission field, a different mission. Yes, these men had specific commissions from Jesus Christ, but so did I. And the point he gets to there at the end of verse 6 is they didn't contribute anything. <coughs> Excuse me. To his authority or his message. Continuing in verse 7 through 9. 
But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It's interesting here that you know, Peter was the first to share the gospel among the Gentiles as Jesus prophesied back in Matthew 16. But his ministry was really to the Jews. That was where he was at home. And God, as we have looked at, had set aside Paul to bring the Gentiles from many different regions into the church. And he says that, when he says that, you know, the way that God had worked through Peter, effectually, he was working in a way that was, was effective. He was doing the same thing through me. And in verse 9, Paul says that they recognized the grace that had been given to him. The grace given to Paul refers to his apostleship to the Gentiles. Turn with me over to Ephesians 3, verse 8. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's interesting, this came up this week. That's in our study on Wednesday night and Wednesday nights in Ephesians, this is right where we are at. And in the, the latter part of chapter two, Paul is talking about how God has made these Gentiles who were once so far from God one with God, just as the Jews were. And then in chapter 3, he's bringing out, and then this is his mission. This is his purpose. This is what he wakes up every day for. This grace that was given to him that he might be able to preach to the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem leadership recognized, or the Greek here is, is really perceived they were able to see in what he was saying, the gospel that he had told them he was preaching, and the way they had seen God using his preaching, that this grace had been given to him by God, that he was an instrument of God. They were able to perceive that. This indicates that they saw the hand of God on Paul for gospel ministry to the Gentiles, and they readily acknowledged it. I do think his, his line here, in verse 9, in our translation, it says, who were, who were reputed to be pillars. Another translation says that they appeared to be pillars. I think, again, he's striking at the heart of one of the Judaizers' arguments that 
that they're lifting up, they're esteeming these leaders in Jerusalem. Even though Paul is showing that these leaders agree with him, he's showing them that these are, these are men. What does a pillar do? A pillar holds something up. Are these men holding up the church? No. That's not their job. The Lord holds up the church. These men are men commissioned by God, just as Paul was. Although they appeared to be pillars, they had the reputation of being pillars. It's another jab at these Judaizers and their arguments. Conclude this section with verse 10. It says, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. The only point that James, Peter, and John made was that Paul should not neglect the poor in his ministry. And Paul had already made a commitment to do this. He said he was eager to do it. You look at the other reason for his visit to Jerusalem, as we saw in in Acts in our scripture reading this morning, was to bring the gift from the church in Antioch to those who were hungry in Judea. And I think it's broader than that. I think that it isn't just that mission that Paul's saying here, that this is that helping the poor, meeting the needs of the people, spiritual and physical, was something that he was eager to do. And you look at the life he led in, as a Pharisee in the way that, as we look through the book of Matthew, the way the Pharisees looked down on these common people and did nothing but impose their rules on them so they could feel better about themselves and how they kept them. And Paul is coming out of that, and now he's able to meet these people's needs, to give them the gospel, to preach to them eternal life through Jesus Christ. And also, he was eager to meet their physical needs. I think that speaks to where Paul was, that he was, he was so far removed from his days of being a Pharisee that he was eager to help the poor, to help the hungry. So these events of this Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, like the events we looked at last week of his life both before and after his conversion, they substantiate his claim that the gospel that he preaches, the gospel that the Galatian churches received, was from God alone. And the earlier set of events supported this by showing that there was never a time when he was dependent upon these apostles in Jerusalem. And the events of this second visit support it by showing the full recognition that was given by the apostles. Even though he makes it clear that they are just men like he is a man, they did accept him because they were preaching the same gospel. And he brings that, adds that extra fact in there to repute the Judaizers that even Titus, among these men, these men of reputation, these men who appeared to be pillars, even among them, Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. Titus was someone that Paul trusted, who Paul confided in, who Paul took comfort in. 
and yet he didn't need to be circumcised. The gospel of grace comes from God alone, and it was preached by the other apostles as well. As I've been studying these verses the last couple weeks, my big takeaway, really in my own mind, now that we're two-thirds of the way through Paul's little history lesson here, and his defense of himself is his conviction. It's a deep conviction. You know, honestly, Paul, even though he got vindication from these apostles, these men of reputation, he didn't need it. He didn't need it for himself. God sent him there and God provided that to support his ministry, to help refute the Judaizers. But Paul didn't need it for himself. And I was thinking, I mean, of course he didn't. God gave him a special revelation, and so he was solid as a rock in what he believed. Back when we did the the service for the graduates, we looked at 2 Timothy 4, one of I probably most pastors' famous verses, Second Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And I think for us, we look at this, we haven't received a special revelation directly from God of what the gospel is. But he gave us his word. Paul, that received that special revelation, wrote that gospel down over and over. Jesus gave his gospel over and over. We need to know it. We need to be as rock solid in it as Paul was because this is a fight worth fighting. That if anyone tries to add anything to the gospel, they say no. You know, something struck me when Carissa was up here. She was talking about the goal of heart to heart beyond the, the needs that they meet is to, she said, that to share the hope that we have in the gospel. If the gospel is anything but faith in Jesus equals eternal life, there's no hope in that. If it's faith plus works, how much is good enough? When do I earn it? How do I know I've been good enough? Is it this much or is it this much? How do I quantify that? The Bible never quantifies that because that's not how it works. It's faith alone and Christ alone. That's where the hope is found. And that really struck me because to people who think they've got it all right, that they've got it going on, a gospel of works is a great gospel because Like the Pharisees, they get to say, look what I have done to make myself right with God. But to the broken, to the women who come into a place like Heart to Heart that need help, to people who have hit rock bottom in any manner of form in life, to be able to tell them that there is nothing you can do, but the good news is someone already did it for you. There's hope in that. And 
And we need to be ready in season and out of season to share that and to know why. God may not have uploaded it to your brain like he did Paul, but he gave you his word, and we need to know it and be ready to share it.